Welcome to episode nine of the Inside Elections podcast, where we analyze elections in a nonpartisan, data-driven, and accessible way. In this episode, what to watch and what to ignore in the upcoming 2023 elections, new house ratings after new maps in North Carolina and Alabama, and how many more candidates will drop out of the GOP presidential race before we finish recording this episode. Here we go. Hello, I'm Nathan Gonzalez, editor of Inside Elections, and my favorite Halloween costume growing up was the Karate Kid. I'm Jacob Rubashkin, reporter and analyst for Inside Elections, and my favorite Halloween costume growing up was French Emperor Napoleon Bonaparte. Hey everyone, I'm Erin Covey. I'm also a reporter and analyst for Inside Elections. And I had a lot of boring Halloween costumes over the years because I danced and so I would usually just like recycle whatever my recital costumes were. But when I was little, my mom made a Hershey Kiss costume that looked very realistic and she put a lot of effort into it. So I'm going to have to say that was my favorite. Well, and that's Aaron. Actually, my mom made my Karate Kid costume, and um, and I I was Karate Kid multiple years because she put so much time and effort to it, and it, and it was cool. It was very well done. Um, yeah. But Jacob, yours went a little different direction uh, with Napoleon. I know. Was yeah, that last though- year? <laughs> <laughs> no, no. This was fourth grade. It gives you a sense of the kind of fourth grader I was. My mom also made my costume. Uh, I had the the Napoleon hat made out of black construction paper. Um, you know, I had the epaulets, the sash, uh, the whole deal. There is a photo out on my Twitter um, of, of four year, of, not four year old, fourth grade Jacob uh, dressed up as Napoleon uh, for, for enterprising listeners who want to go find it. Uh, but I think that ranks certainly uh, at the top of, of my many costumes over the years. Did it give you a complex? <laughs> no, I don't think the complex the, the complex not included um, <laughs> with that one. Or maybe this is just an effort with the new Napoleon movie coming out. This is just like a crossover oh, yeah. plea for a sponsorship, which we're not against. We're, we're not <laughs> against, but I can see this. Uh, before we get into our, our three big stories, let's do some headlines. Uh, Jacob, what should folks not miss? So Maryland Representative John Sarbanes uh, is headed for the exits after nine terms representing Annapolis and the Baltimore suburbs. Uh, the wonky Democrat, who was always very issues focused, uh, passed up uh, several opportunities to run for higher office, either Senate, like his father, the late Senator Paul Sarbanes, or governor uh, on on a few occasions. Um, it's notable because not only is this a, an open seat for Congress and a safe Democratic seat, that will see probably a large primary. Uh, but Maryland may well see significant turnover in its congressional delegation uh, this cycle or over the next couple of years, with Senator Ben Cardin taking his leave at the end of this year. Senator David, uh, Congressman David Trone, who is an underdog to replace Cardin, could also be potentially leaving D.C. Uh, and then uh, Representatives Dutch Ruppersberger and Steny Hoyer also at the tail end of their careers. So a big couple years for a state that does not see a significant amount of turnover historically. Yeah, and open seats is kind of the, the theme here. Uh, Aaron, what, what should folks not miss? We had another House Democrat announce 
retirement this week. Earl Blumenauer, who has represented the Portland area for more than three decades, announced that he's retiring. Not a huge surprise, um, but this is probably going to lead to a pretty competitive primary on the Democratic side. This is one of the bluest seats in the country, and so the Democratic primary is going to decide who succeeds Blumenauer. And it's also going to be an interesting test of the strength of various progressive leaders, I think, particularly Pramila Jayapal, because her sister is preparing to run for this seat. Um, but she's not going to be the only progressive in the race. State Representative Travis Nelson is also preparing to run. And there's a couple of other um, big names in the Portland area that are looking at running as well. So this is going to be a really interesting primary to watch. And that will, Blumenauer's exit will take the congressional, there'll be a new leader of the Congressional Bike Caucus. I believe he's the, the head of that. And, right. Uh, Founder, a member, too. <laughs> and a member of the unofficial Bowtie, I think, caucus. I don't know, uh, depending on new members. Uh, I don't know if Jayapal's sister is a wears a bow tie or not. I'm not familiar, uh, but uh, we'll see. <laughs> we'll How see. many members? Blumenauer, McHenry, Donald Payne? It's Anyone small, else? It's a small group. I think yeah. it's a small table if they go out to a dinner. You're proud. Um, <laughs> but in in mine, uh, Minnesota Congressman Dean Phillips, uh, a Democrat or DFLer, uh, announced his primary challenge to President Joe Biden. Uh, what's interesting about this, I don't think Phillips' primary challenge is going to go very far. We've actually uh, kind of had a test run starting at the beginning of August when Phillips started talking about uh, this this potential this potential scenario. Um, but I'm not considering this an open seat quite yet because the filing deadline for in Minnesota is early June, and you know Phillips could take this. Uh, you know, could take this presidential run, you know, for a few weeks or even a few months and then fall back to running for reelection. There are there is another candidate in the race and, and we'll see how the primary turns out and how many people he angers in that process. But uh, right now, I believe we have not counting Phillips. I think we have there are 21 uh, open seats right now uh, and we're still less than average. The average is 34. But what we've seen is that filing deadlines are coming up. Um, it looks like Texas Republican Kay Granger is not running for re-election. I think one of the reasons why we're getting that announcement is because the Texas filing deadline is coming up uh, in, in December. So we're going to start to see these members have to make real decisions about their, about their futures. The Inside Elections podcast is sponsored by George Washington University's Graduate School of Political Management, or GSPM. The GSPM program offers master's degrees in legislative affairs and political management with in-person and online class schedules designed for the working professional. Uh, I got to say, for me, it was the complete package. Uh, I knew I wanted to get a master's degree and GSPM was more practical than uh, an advanced degree in political science. Uh, the class schedule allowed me to keep my full-time job. I met a lot of great fellow students, both Republicans and Democrats, uh, that I would end up working with professionally uh, later on down the line. So uh, it was the right program for me. Uh, just click on the link, get more information, and see if GSPM uh, is the right program for you. First up, let's talk about the 2023 elections, including the fight for the Virginia Assembly. Now, for those of you listening that are outside the Washington, D.C. area, um, sometimes Virginia's elections get a disproportionate amount of attention because a lot of D.C. reporters 
uh, see the ads from the Virginia race in the Washington, D.C. market. Uh, here are a couple examples. I'm Russet Perry. For 10 years, I carried this badge as a prosecutor, putting child molesters and murderers behind bars. Juan Pablo Segura wants to put doctors behind bars by criminalizing abortions. He's wrong. Women and doctors who provide reproductive care aren't criminals. Supported by defund the police radicals, Russet Perry's office pushed to bond out domestic abusers. The result? Released on an unsecured bond. Showing up at his wife's home and bludgeoning her with a hammer. Perry's radical ideology jeopardizes your safety. We've had enough. That's from a hot race for the state Senate in Loudoun and Fauquier counties in the Washington, D.C. suburbs and exurbs. But there are also races for governor in Kentucky and Mississippi, key ballot measures in Ohio uh, and more. Uh, And since these are actual voters casting real ballots, uh, there's going to be a lot of attention on these 2023 races. So, Jacob, first of all, uh, what are you watching in these upcoming upcoming elections? Well, the marquee legislative fight is is definitely for control of the Virginia State House and State Senate. Both are up for grabs. Both are very evenly divided. Uh, of course, Governor Glenn Youngkin, a Republican, uh, would have full control of the state if Republicans were able to flip the Virginia State Senate. Um, if Democrats can win back the state house, that would be a sign of strength there. I think it's been really interesting to see the two parties clash over abortion. Um, you know, one of the, if not the top selling point for Virginia Democrats has been if Republicans get full control of the state house, uh, and the, the state Senate, um, then they will pass a more restrictive abortion law. Republicans are still struggling to find a message on abortion that appeals to the kind of suburban voters and really even kind of voters of all swaths um, who who are skeptical of of the more strict pro-life stances that a lot of the politicians have. So Governor Yunkin has endorsed a 15-week ban, but uh, Democrats are trying to make the case that uh, they wouldn't stop there necessarily if given full control. And it'll be interesting to see how effective that is in a lot of these places that vote for, for Biden at the top of the ticket, but still might vote for Republicans down ballot. Yeah, and abortion is also a really key issue in Ohio next month um, because issue one is going to be on the ballot, which would codify abortion rights in the state. Um, And currently, polling that I have seen shows the issue has around 60% support, um, but not all of this polling uses the actual same phrasing as the issue will be on the ballot. So it's kind of unclear um, how much credit to give to those polls. But I think, you know, the success or failure of this issue will probably energize um, either party um, ahead of the Senate race in Ohio, which is going to be one of the most decisive races in determining control of the Senate in 2024. And if um, issue one passes, that'll give Democrats a burst of energy, I'm sure. Um, And then regardless, um, I think the Republican primary for the Ohio Senate race has kind of been a little delayed because of all the focus on issue one. So we're probably going to see that race start to heat up once this is decided. Yeah. To me, one of the big takeaways or things to watch in 2023 is is the messaging back and forth. And we'll have to listen after these elections are over 
uh, I've often said we have to listen to what the politicians think happened in these elections, even if it's different than what actually happened, uh, because what they think happened is going to drive their future behavior. For example, if they uh, if uh, if Ohio, if uh, the I- issue one passes and it passes you know, by a by a large margin, what lessons do both parties take from that? It'll probably embolden Democrats and cause Republicans to to uh, again think about how they're how they're going to respond. Uh, but there are other issues. Uh, you know, the Kentucky governor's race is is going to be huge, not just because it's a it's electing the the chief officer of of a state, but because you're seeing uh, you're seeing Democrats attacking Republicans on uh, on abortion access and attacking Daniel Cameron, the state attorney general on abortion access. You're seeing uh, Republicans attack Bashir, Governor Andy Bashir on on crime and safety issues. And even at the end, Republicans are just going all in and tying uh, tying Bashir to Biden, which should work in a state like Kentucky. But if that anchor, if if Biden isn't the anchor to Bashir, as much as what Republicans thought, then that could be a sign that just connecting to connecting a Democratic politician to Biden is it's just not that simple. And Republicans are going to have to get more get more creative. What could be a result that could be a, a mirage or something that could be a, not necessarily uh, tell us much about what will happen in 2024? Uh, this is not technically what's happening next month. Um, But I think the results of the Louisiana governor's race, no one should be reading larger narratives into those. Um, Louisiana is already a weird state, um, for those of you who are familiar with it, and the way its politics works are kind of weird. And so um, that already like makes it a, a bit of an outlier. But it's also a state where, again, Bell Edwards, the current governor who was term limited, was probably one of the few Democrats who could have even had a shot at winning this race. And because he wasn't on the ballot, a lot of Democrats were super pessimistic that they would be able to hold the seat. Um, And so Jeff Landry, who was the Republican attorney general and um, was the leading Republican candidate in this race who won the jungle primary outright. So now he's poised to succeed Bell Edwards. He was always the favorite to win. um, And I don't think these results surprise anyone. And it really shouldn't say anything about the um, strength of the larger Republican Party going into these um, later 2023 races and 2024. There's a danger here if if. Governor Bashir loses in Kentucky and Tate Reeves wins in Mississippi. If Republicans win both of those states, you will see a lot of, you know, what does this mean for Democrats? Are Democrats toast? When in reality, these are two very Republican states that happen to have competitive elections, but not because of anything to do with the national political environment. To And they have everything to do with the specific candidates who are running there. And so uh, obviously we see Governor Bashir as a slight favorite. Um, but I, I want to emphasize the slight there, right? I think a Democrat, the best a Democrat can do in Kentucky these days is probably about 52%. That's the kind of narrow margin that, you know, if the weather doesn't cooperate for him on election day, that could be the difference. So uh, I, I, I do think that's important to remember that we're talking about in those governor's races, at least, and I'd include Louisiana here too, even though it's already happened, some of the most Republican states in the country, Um and and to keep that in mind when trying to extrapolate based on on local results or state level results trends for for national elections. 
Yeah, and I think um, we saw a lot of this in 2021 after Youngkin won the Virginia governor's race. That is obviously a relatively more competitive state than all of these other states that have governors up for re-election. Um, and so, again, not at maybe as much of a surprise as it should have, as it, as it came off to a lot of folks um, who were caught off guard by his success. But it also just showed that a lot of the specific messaging that propelled him to victory did not end up being as salient in 2022 as a lot of Republicans were expecting because other issues had come to the forefront. This was pre-Dobbs um, and this was like much further along from the pandemic and all of the school closures. And so um, you, you can't put too much faith in one particular line of messaging because we don't know what the environment is going to be in 2024. Right. And that if Republicans do well in Virginia uh, in the, in this year's legislative races, there's going to be another Yunkin boomlet. And it's not, <laughs> first of all, <laughs> filing deadlines, we're already approaching filing deadlines, uh, but it will, it's not going to force other Republican candidates out of the race, right? I mean, it's, you know, Nikki Haley is not just going to step aside and say, oh, okay, Glenn Youngkin, you won, you managed to win your own state Senate. Uh, I'm out of the presidential race. It's just not going to, it's just not going to happen. So, uh, but we should get, we're trying to get ahead of where, how far, how far the narrative is going to get out of hand, uh, potentially, depending on what happens, what happens here and uh, ne next week. Yeah, I think the only thing Glenn Youngkin really has over the Republic, the non-Trump Republican field is that he's not running for president right now. So he looks he looks a lot more attractive uh, because he's he's not in the fray. He's above the fray right now and it's not going to happen. But the minute he were to get into the presidential race, he would just be another guy running for president in the same way that all these guys and, and one lady uh, are just non-Trump politicians trying to, you know, stake a claim in the primary. Yeah. And he's never had to actually win a real primary either. <laughs> that, so yeah, people forget that as well. Yeah. So I think it's the backup, the backup quarterback always looks, uh, always looks good when the starting yeah. quarterback isn't, uh, isn't doing, isn't doing well. Uh, well, before we get to 2024, um, there are actually 20, there's so other 2023 news that is happening that will impact next year's elections. Uh, there are new maps uh, over the last few weeks in Alabama and North Carolina uh, that are going to be critical in, uh, in their impact on the fight for the House majority. Um, new districts have caused some incumbents to make decisions, whether they're going to run against a colleague or, or maybe even run for another office. Got some news for you. A group of politicians in North Carolina just redrew my congressional district to take me out. They're going to replace me with one of their political allies. That's political corruption. And I've got news for them. I'm running for attorney general, and I'm going to use that job to go after political corruption. That was Jeff Jackson, a Democratic congressman in North Carolina who just got a newly drawn, very Republican seat after Republicans passed that new map. Um, Aaron, walk us through the impact that the maps in Alabama and North Carolina are going to have uh, the net gain and loss of seats in the fight for the majority. Right. So we have had quite a bit of redistricting news over the past couple of weeks, not just in these two states, but in a couple of other states with pending redistricting cases. But in North Carolina, um, this is going to be one of the most consequential states because the Republican-controlled state legislature just drew a new congressional map that will basically force three current Democratic members of Congress out of their seats. 
So currently, the delegation is split evenly between Democrats and Republicans. Republicans control seven seats. Democrats control the other seven seats in North Carolina. But under this new map, Republicans are poised to control 10 seats, maybe 11 seats, and Democrats will be left with only three or four seats. Um, so this is obviously going to affect the reelection prospects of these three Democratic Congress members who are Jeff Jackson, who we just heard in the previous clip, who's running for attorney general now, and then Kathy Manning and Wiley Nickel, neither of which have fully disclosed their 2024 plans. Um, and then Don Davis, who currently represents a Democratic-leaning district that is a little competitive, is now in a district that we have rated as a pure toss-up because Biden only won this seat by about a point and a half, and this is now going to be one of the most competitive races in the country probably next year. And then in Alabama, we also have a new map there. Um, so their current map um, was thrown out by courts for um, allegedly violating the Voting Rights Act. And the new court-drawn map will allow Democrats to flip a second seat in Alabama. So currently, Democrats control only one seat out of Alabama's seven seats. This new map would allow them to flip a second seat. The second seat um, has already drawn a lot of interest from Democrats. And this um, case in Alabama could affect some other states down the line. But right now, if you're looking at just North Carolina and Alabama, Republicans are poised to net two seats due to redistricting alone. And what other maps could change this cycle ahead of next year? So Georgia um, may be the most likely to change because a federal judge there just threw out their current congressional map, um, also alleging that it violated the Voting Rights Act. Um, and the Republican governor, Brian Kemp, has ordered a special session to start after Thanksgiving to draw a new map. Now, it's not totally certain that a new map that complies with the court order would necessarily result in a Democratic pickup here just because the geography of the state is a little different than Alabama. Um, but there's a pretty good chance that Democrats will be able to flip a seat in Georgia as well. And then maybe in Louisiana, too, which, again, also has a Voting Rights Act case that is ongoing there. Um, and we're not going to see results from that until next year, um, which is when the ruling is expected on that case. Um, but from those two states alone, Democrats could net two more seats, um, which would mean that redistricting was a watch, except that in North Carolina or in New York, sorry, there's also a pending case there, um, which could affect as many as six Republicans who are up for re-election next year. So it could end up being that Democrats end up um, making gains from redistricting alone. But right now, Republicans look like they have a slight edge. And Jacob, I think we have a mid-November trial date for Nor for New York. Is that right? Yeah. So the New York Court of Appeals, which is the highest court in New York State, is scheduled to hear that redistricting case on November 15th. Uh, Democrats won at the intermediate level, um, but uh, it is up in the air. The New York uh, Court of Appeals has a new composition since the last time they heard this case last year when they ruled in Republicans' favor. Um, there is a new Democratic-appointed judge on the court. Nobody really knows how it's going to shake out, but if Democrats do win that case, they will most likely at the end of a, another long and kind of torturous process, get an opportunity to redraw the map, uh, potentially giving them an advantage in any number of seats uh, across the state that they lost last cycle. But the key takeaway is that there are half a dozen Republicans that are already vulnerable uh, that could just be 
more vulnerable uh, with a with a redraw. Yeah, I, I think that the the reason why there are so many Republicans in New York right now is because they were able to extend so far into Democratic leaning territory already, um, and so the the six vulnerable members will remain the six vulnerable vulnerable members regardless of whether they redraw the lines or not. It's just a question of just how vulnerable any of them will be next year. Yeah. And one of the things, uh, if let's say there is a new, a new map uh, and we get to the post-election and we're trying to think, you know, what impact did redistricting have on this election cycle? Will we count, you know, if Mike Lawler loses or Anthony D'Esposito loses or Brandon Williams loses, I mean, that district's a little bit, uh, a little bit further away from the city, but uh Will it be because of redistricting or will it just be kind of in the overall wash of the of the cycle? I think it depends on the margin, right? I mean, you know, uh, D'Esposito is sitting in a district that Biden won by 14 points. You know, if he if they I, I don't think they're he's a bad example because I don't think they're going to redraw his district significantly. But let's take Nick Lolata, who's in the first district. Biden won that by maybe half a percent in 2020, uh, it's very easy, very straightforward for Democrats to redraw that district to be significantly more Democratic, something closer to a Biden plus eight or Biden plus nine. If we get to 2024 and Lilata loses re-election by two points in a redrawn district, I think it's fair to say redistricting probably caused him uh, to lose. If he loses by 15 points, in a seat that they only redrew, redrew to be a Biden plus eight, then, you know, I think it's a, a more complicated question. Yeah. And uh, we should also, when we're talking about open seats, that this cycle, I think one of the reasons why there are fewer retirements and we're less than average is because we were just coming out of a redistricting cycle. Aaron, I think you made this point either on a previous podcast or a, a webinar or something that we had that uh, members have already had to make uh, tough decisions about what they're doing based on their new districts that were given to them before the 2022 elections. And so uh, but because those decisions have already already took place last cycle, there are fewer that are in the same boat that, you know, Kathy Manning is in right now or Wiley Nickel are in, uh, is in right now because they we've already gone through that that exercise. Yeah, yeah. And for folks who have been in Congress a while, a redistricting cycle is a more natural time to decide to retire because they're already probably going to have to represent a at least slightly different version of their current district, if not significantly different. Well, looking ahead to 2024, shifting a bit from the House, from the House and the Senate, I don't know if you've heard that there's a presidential election going on. Uh, and that presidential field changed a bit after Vice President Mike Pence dropped out of the race. So after much prayer and deliberation, I have decided to suspend my campaign for president effective today. I've been wrong about many things in life, but I was, I've been right all along that Pence had no lane or no path in this race. And that, and that finally came to, to fruition. It's almost more remarkable that Pence dropping out of the race has very little impact on the race that he leaves behind. I mean, where, where is his 3% going to go in this, in this race? But my question to both of you, who's going to drop out next and will it matter in this presidential nominating contest? Hutchinson, probably. Is he still in the race? I didn't even know. Yeah, I don't think he made the debate stage. So 
I don't think that'll matter that much, but realistically, probably someone like him or maybe Burgum, that would make the most sense. I think it's all going to kind of happen all at once, though, with at least like the folks who are not Nikki Haley or Ron DeSantis, maybe Tim Scott. I saw Hutchinson's campaign manager just left his campaign and kind of publicly said that he left because he didn't see a path forward for him as a viable candidate. Um, Which did he see a path forward earlier? (laughs) I don't know. Before, (laughs) maybe, I don't know. Uh, Honestly, I mean, I think at this point, if you're Tim Scott, you, uh, all of the warning signs have been flashing for a little while now. I mean, his super PAC went off the air, said that they were going to recommit resources to Iowa. Um, They, there have been all these stories about uh, a frustration with Larry Ellison, the billionaire Oracle founder who talked such a big game earlier in the cycle about bankrolling Scott's candidacy. And he seems to have uh, cut off his giving as well. Um, You know, uh, I think they're, they're, they're focusing tremendously on Iowa, which is never a great sign. Uh, And, and they're not seeing very much results. They had pulled themselves into third place, really almost a tie for second place uh, over the summer and have since fallen back down. I saw a poll the other day that had him at 5% in his home state of South Carolina. Um, this is a guy who could still have a very long and, and fruitful future in the Republican Party uh, in the Senate. He could run for president in 25 years and be you know, the same age as Joe Biden um, is now, right? I mean, th- there's no reason why he has to spend all of his money and all of his political capital on a presidential run now when it's become clear that uh, he he's not the number two option. He's not even really the number three option now that Nikki Haley has picked up some steam. Um, so I, I wouldn't be surprised if he cuts his losses on the early side um, and, and gets out of this race. Yeah, it almost feels to me like everyone kind of overestimated what his ceiling would be because he's just so popular in D.C. and is very well liked within the Senate Republican conference and is just a likable kind of guy. And so folks assumed that would maybe translate to success on the campaign trail and being like the alternative to DeSantis or overtaking DeSantis. But instead, Nikki Haley's kind of in that position now. And what what is the risk, do you think? I mean, I was going to ask whether you all think who's going to drop out first between Tim Scott and Governor Ron DeSantis. It sounds like you might you might think Scott. But, Jacob, as you answer, as you were talking about looking ahead, you know, what what is a better play if you want to run for something down the line, sort of get out early or, you know, or push push forward and and see how far you can get it into go into the into the actual primary calendar with voters actually voters actually voting. I think that we've we've seen both historically, right, uh, to varying degrees of success, right? Hillary Clinton stood, you know, strong throughout the entire 2008 primary, um, was passed over for VP, of course, but got that Secretary of State position and then was first in line in 2016 after the Obama years. Bernie Sanders stuck it out all the way in the 2016 primary, uh, took it to the convention, not really, but but technically speaking. Um, and then, you know, that was clearly in anticipation of running again uh, if he needed to in, in 2020, where he didn't win the nomination. Um, you know, I... I 
I think it depends on the candidate um, and it depends what they think they can get out of it, right? If you think you're going to get a plum administration spot, either vice president or something else that will keep you in the mix uh, for the next four or eight years, you might want to drop out early, right? Because you want to endear yourself to the person who's going to win the nomination, in this case, Trump. Um, you know, I, I think it's highly unlikely that Ron DeSantis is going to get a job in the next Trump administration. Uh, I would be, you know, stranger things have happened, but I would be shocked if that's the case. So I think that removes a bit of an incentive for him to drop out early. I also think, you know, he's still got that super PAC with uh, $80 million or so dollars in it. Um, and that makes it very easy to continue running a campaign because the super PAC is really the one that's paying for everything, right? DeSantis can run kind of a skeleton operation for, for a very long time. We saw in 2012, you know, uh, Newt Gingrich and Rick Santorum both basically run entire campaigns structured around one billionaire who was funding them and allowing them to go far deeper into that race than if they had to fundraise themselves. So I, I wouldn't be surprised if DeSantis sticks it out for, for a lot longer, uh, even as it's becoming clearer and clearer that he's not in a position to win. Yeah, it's it's amazing to me that timing matters and it's just hard to predict. I mean, I remember the 2015, 2016 days, the talk about Senator Marco Rubio. And, and there was a sense that all right, Trump was ascendant. He was rising sort of Republicans like, let's give Trump his moment, but we know Rubio is going to be president one one day. Like, like he was the rising star. And that's just, I don't think he's considered that anymore. I mean, we're, we're years away from those moments, but uh, just sentiment around him or, or his profile has changed. Um, I also wanted to bring up the context of uh, Iowa and this time back in the 2015-2016 race, that this was the moment where Ted Cruz was starting his uh, ascent in Iowa all the way up to what I believe was a 28% victory in Iowa. And you can say, oh, well, Nikki Haley is getting, you know, she's rising in Iowa and in, in, in the low 20s and, and getting close. But the difference is that you have Trump at 50 plus percent. <laughs> like, it's just a very, very different race. Uh and if, if Nikki Haley's trying to, you know, make a, that Ted Cruz, that Ted Cruz momentum in, in Iowa, she's just it's it's a completely different race with basically an incumbent uh, that she's she's trying to topple. But let's well, let's uh, let's move on. And finally, our Look What I Found segment, where we talk about things we've recently seen, whether it be sports, politics, pop culture. It, uh, it doesn't have to be anything specific, just something we found. Erin, what did you find? So for my birthday this year, my sister got me a record from this artist named Leve, who I was sort of familiar with. I, I know a couple of her songs, but hadn't really like gotten into her before, but my sister thought I would like her. And then the next day, one of my friends who works at NPR texted me and asked me if I wanted to go to her tiny desk. So I went to that yesterday, which was a lot of fun. Um, and I think I can say I'm a fan now. She's like a modern jazz singer, um, kind of in like the mid-century style. Um, and yeah, she's really good. She's super young. I think she's maybe 23 or 24 years old, but incredibly talented. And yeah, I would recommend that y'all check her out. That's amazing. Was there a good crowd at the Tiny Desk recording? No, I mean, it's 
It's hard because NPR is mostly remote these days, it seems like. And so when, when I worked there, we were all working in person. And so some tiny desks were super busy. But this one was, I don't know, not that not that crowded. What was the best one you got to go to? Oh, I saw Taylor Swift when she did hers, and that was crazy. That one you had to, it was like a lottery system because <laughs> there was so much demand within the NPR headquarters. And what was oh, the wow. what was the name in internally? Wasn't there a code name or something that was on the list of upcoming Tiny Desk, the schedule or something? But I can't remember what the the code name for Taylor Swift was. I don't remember. I do remember getting the email, though, because I was working on the fourth floor of the newsroom at the time, and you could hear a, col- a collective gasp, like, rise up <laughs> from the newsroom as the email like, popped into all of our inboxes. But I bet yeah, the code was, name was, was Travis Kelsey. Time. It was just, it was like, <laughs> they somehow knew. <laughs> <laughs> um, Jacob, what did you find? So I am currently working my way through a novel called I Have Some Questions for You by Rebecca Maki. It is a uh, mystery thriller murder novel about a woman who goes back to her fancy New Hampshire prep school uh, several decades after graduating and gets kind of roped into uh, an investigation trying to solve uh, the murder of her former roommate back in the 1990s. Uh, I'm only about a third of the way through. But so far, I'm really enjoying it. I have been on a bit of a, a thriller and, and mystery kick lately. And this is a really great kind of modern um, addition to, to that genre for sure. Yet more bedtime reading for my kids, it sounds like. <laughs> do you have, exactly, yeah. Do you have a, a book goal every year that you want to read a certain number of books? Or do you just take them, take them as they come? Uh, no, I'm not that regimented. I, I just always try to be reading something. Um, and, you know, I, I try and alternate fiction and nonfiction because the, the fiction propels me um, in, into the next book. I have to, you know, keep a little variety in order to, to keep up the cycle. But I, I, don't, I don't set a goal or anything like that. And does Twitter or X, does that count as reading fiction or nonfiction? What is that? <laughs> Well, I actually found this book through Twitter um, because a couple writers that I already followed were saying very good things about it. So I followed Rebecca and I saw the book and I waited about three or four months to get it off of hold at the DC Public Library, uh, my favorite place. And so now I have about three weeks to read it uh, before I have to return it because there is a long line of people after me also interested in checking it out. I'm pretty sure you're on the un, unpaid uh, PR team for the DC Public Library. I, 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 haven't, I haven't confirmed it. Oh, I yet. love them. <laughs> I'm annoyed because I didn't open the app for like three days, and one of my books that I was reading got automatically returned because I forgot to renew it. Oh, so no. Currently, I'm a little anti them, but you know, <laughs> the relationship will heal. <laughs> Maybe you'll get back together. Is that a? Yeah, we'll see. Um, my. Bad attempt at a Taylor Swift reference. Um, uh, I found that the Dallas Dragons defeated their rival Central Panthers 56 to 12 in Oregon's sixth congressional district, uh, mid Willamette Valley district. Uh, the Dragons are going to start the playoffs uh, coming up this weekend against the Thurston Colts down uh, 99W, which is in Oregon's fourth district in Springfield, Oregon. Uh, so Go dragons. Uh, that's, that's my, that's my pitch. That's my pitch there. 
Nathan, if if they make the uh, the championships, are you going to travel back? Oh man, you know it would be it would be <laughs> tough. I think it usually falls around Thanksgiving, which might cause some family. Um, my family out there would be happy. <laughs> I don't know about my family, my family here, uh, but we'll see. It would be it would be tempting, but it's going to be. There's some tough. It it'll be a tough road if they if they get there. It'll be they they definitely earned it. And that's all the time we have. We discussed what to watch in the upcoming 2023 elections, how the new maps in North Carolina and Alabama will impact the fight for the House and the ongoing saga of the Republican presidential primary. Thank you for joining us. Uh, At Inside Elections, we provide nonpartisan analysis of congressional, presidential, and gubernatorial races. With a combination of reporting and data, we break down the key races and bring valuable context to those complex elections. Please go to InsideElections.com to subscribe to our bi-weekly newsletter. We have individual subscriptions as well as group packages that are tailored to help boost association and corporate packs. If you like this episode, please subscribe to the podcast. Do all the things that you're supposed to do. Uh, Give us a, a rating, leave a comment, click thumbs up if you're watching on YouTube. If you didn't like today's episode, please email Ralph Macchio. We also want to thank our producers, Alan Tazinski and Melissa Lenner of Pretty Easy Podcasts and our associate producer, Conrad Tolosa. Please come back and join us again next time.